fighting for freedom every day. Republicans right now, the conservatives, which unfortunately, this is what we have to do every time, even after a vote where people are sick and tired of the establishment, they're sick and tired of the squeezy, middle-of-the-road, squishy kind of Republican rhinos, and we vote conservatives in, then we have to fight tooth and nail in D.C. to actually be heard within the Republican Party. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed it is. What's up? Welcome into the program. Hey, it's a Thursday. The pre-Friday celebration, greatest day of the entire week. You're excited, I'm excited, you scream, I scream, we all scream for ice cream. That's what we do here on this show. And I don't know how we'll get through all of these shenanigans on this program today. So strap in, buckle up, and let's get ready because we have so much to talk about. And we're going to start right now. Broadcasting live out of the heart of the nation here in Wichita, Kansas on our flagship radio station. We are all over the country. Multiple radio stations and TV and live streaming and podcasting. However you watch or listen to the show, welcome aboard your Millennial General reporting for duty like we do every single day. We have a lot to talk about. Obviously, the Biden indictment could be coming. Joe Biden, you feeling all right, buddy? I know you're getting a little nervous. I want to be clear. I'm not going nuts. Making sure. Just making sure we have not him with indictments, but we do have indictments coming down for Hunter Biden up to 10 years in jail. Not for tax evasion or tax issues with the millions upon millions of dollars that they've gotten from overseas, but for gun charges. Hmm. We'll get to that here in just a little bit. Bottom of the hour, we have Lee Schalke, Vice President of Policy for American Legislative Exchange Council, also known as ALEC. Uh, we've chatted with them a few times on the program. We'll have him on at the bottom. They have their upcoming 50th meeting in a uh, annual meeting to talk about legislative priorities for the state's. And that'll be an interesting conversation on what they're going to focus on at the statewide levels across the nation. I don't want to waste any time, though, because I'm really excited for our first guest on the program today. What's trending today? And really happy to have him since we weren't able to chat with him a few days ago. And as they are wonderful partners with us here on The Voice of Reason for our video stream, our our radio program, both for the weekday and for our weekend show as well. Excited to have on here. He is the Senior Fellow for Fiscal Policy for Americans for Prosperity, one of my favorite organizations out there. It's Mr. Kurt Couchman with us here. Kurt, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great, coming to you live from the edge of the swamp. Ooh, from right at the edge of the swamp. Do you do you smell it? I'm sure there's an odor lingering in Washington D.C. at times with all of the swampy lizardness <laughs> that goes on around there, right? <laughs> there certainly are sometimes. You yeah, just have to get the winds right. Yeah. Well, now that everybody's back in Washington, obviously the main, at least some of the main focal points that they're supposed to be working on in D.C. is, of course, a federal budget. Now. I, from what we've heard and what we've talked to with some of the elected officials, it does not sound like we will have a budget by the end of September when we're supposed to, which means however many years in a row now we could see a continuing resolution until December. What's the latest that you've heard? Well, we are expecting there to be a continuing resolution. Um, all of the appropriations bills haven't been adopted on time, meaning the start of the new fiscal year, for 26 years now. 26 years, they've always had to start the new fiscal year with a continuing resolution for at least part of the government. But but one other thing that I think is really important is we're talking about appropriations. Appropriations right now are only 27% of spending, and none of the revenue's in there. <laughs> so it's not a budget. <laughs> it's the appropriations bills, and they're important. A lot of them fund important functions of government, like defense. Um, but it's uh, it's the minority share of the spending side and none of the revenue side. 
that is frustrating and upsetting. And we try to break it down quite a bit on this program about the difference between discretionary spending, which is part of this appropriations bill, and the mandatory spending, which is the majority of the social programs bankrupting our nation, but we're not allowed to touch them or even slow the growth of them down or else we're being accused of letting people die in the streets and not wanting to give them the proper uh, programs that they need in order to survive and so on and so forth. Uh, Focusing on this appropriations process, we haven't even done any appropriations, like you said, in a while because it's just been this omnibus package, pass it to see what's in it. Even with the extension this year, are you hopeful that we could at least get the appropriations bills done by December and by the end of the year? I wish that would be the case, but I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I mean, in the House, you know, there's a four-seat Republican majority, um, or that's the margin. And so, like, between moderate Republicans and more conservative Republicans, it's really hard for them to find any sort of agreement. So it doesn't look like um, the House is going to be able to pass more than maybe one or two, but they haven't been able to do much yet. And then uh, it really looks like the Senate is going to get together and do some bipartisan big spending bills, and that's what's going to drive the continuing resolution at the end of this month or early next month, depending on if we have a shutdown. And then um, what happens in December, we could end up with a probably Senate-crafted omnibus appropriations bill that'll have who knows knows what in it. Um, I wish the House were able to to pass this legislation and we could get better policy out of it, but it just doesn't look like the votes are going to be there. Why is it so hard to be able to pass this? I mean, we have a majority of Republicans in the House of Representatives. Why is it difficult for them to come together and say, we're spending too much damn money, let's go ahead and shorten the budget and pass it and put it in the hands of the Senate to say, either you guys pass this or it's your fault if we end up going into a government shutdown? Like, why is that so difficult for Republicans to unite under? Well, the truth is that the House Appropriations Committee has done great work uh, in going through and finding programs that either don't need any funding at all because they're not worth doing or uh, don't need as much funding as they're getting. But again, the part that the Appropriations Committee looks at is only 27 percent of spending. And that part of spending, you know, if you look at it over time, it's pretty stable as a share of the economy. It's really the health care programs, especially and, and Social Security to a lesser extent, that are growing by leaps and bounds. But those programs and a whole bunch of other ones um, aren't part of this appropriations process. So from members' perspective, they're kind of out of sight, out of mind, and procedurally they are out of reach. Uh, And there's also the whole tax code, which is a mess that needs to be cleaned up, but members don't have that opportunity. So when members want to engage in, you know, spending control, they focus on the part that is actually coming before them, even though that's not the part that ideally they would be thinking about. Yeah. Uh, how unfortunate. It's very frustrating, I think, for a lot of us who want to see this budget get under control. We're talking with Kurt Couchman. He's a senior fellow for fiscal policy at Americans for Prosperity. You can find them online at americansforprosperity.org. Great partners here with us here on The Voice of Reason. Let's talk about the size of this budget, because just back in June, we ran out of money. They were talking about the government shutting down, about our credit uh, rating going down a little bit because we couldn't pay our bills for about three months going into the end of the fiscal year for this year. So what do we do? We have Kevin McCarthy and Republicans that talked good for a while, saying that we're going to actually kind of, uh, this is the opportunity for us to clean out some of the spending, to get some of this out, to try and cut back a little bit, to try and reappropriate a little bit, especially with some of the uh, to un- unspent COVID-19 funds and so on and so forth. We end up turning into a bill that we increase our spending by $2 trillion for two years straight for a total of $4 trillion, where this budget alone is roughly the same amount is what we were spending during the COVID pandemic and the massive bailouts we saw across the nation. And now we have Democrats wanting to obviously cap that out to its fullest extent. 
Republicans saying, let's just keep like 2% of that open. But how in the world can we sustain such drastic increases of spending at such a fast pace right now? Well, we can't. I mean, the deficit this year, the fiscal year that's about to end at the end of September, um, the, the deficit will have been $2 trillion for this year. That's about twice as much as it was in the previous fiscal year. Uh, and so we just can't keep you know, piling on new debt to the tune of $2 trillion a year. At some point, uh, we're going to have a fiscal crisis, and that could turn into like a, a far-reaching economic security, lots of different kinds of crises. Um, but, you know, already the, the debt is so high that it is undermining uh, economic growth because people look at that and they say, one, that's a lot of debt. And I don't know, like, whose ox is going to be gored to, to deal with that. Like, what spending is going to be cut? What taxes are going to be raised? Who knows? Um, and so unless you have an investment that's going to pay off relatively quickly and you're a business person, you're not going to make it because you don't know, like, where that burden is going to fall. And then the other piece is uh, is just that... Uh, there have been taxes that have been increased to the last couple of years. There have been all sorts of new special programs created um, by the Biden administration with the help of the Democratic Congress last Congress. And so people are kind of figuring out how all of that affects them and then also all the regulations that have been spilling out of this administration. So there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of worry about um, what's going to come next. And so it is undermining uh, the, the ability for employers to create new and better jobs and actually really compete for workers, which is what makes, you know, uh, jobs better than they are right now. Well, yeah, and it creates the economic prosperity. Well, back in the day when we actually had a proper budget that was in place before we started going to this process we see now, we used to cap our debt for the nation at right around, I mean, it was like a big thing. We were like, oh, we're going to cap it at like 40% because it used to be like 18, 20% of the GDP for the nation. Now we're sitting at like 120% of the entire private sector that we have spending in debt at the federal level. Is there any chance now, or are we too far gone to eventually get back to a point where we can cap it and say, we cannot have federal government debt more than 30, 40% of our actual GDP. We can fix it. It's going to take some time. I mean, there are a bunch of States. um, Well, even the federal government um, was in a really bad spot um, after the, the revolution. And we had all this debt And it took a little while to dig out of that. And then the states got into trouble and they got back out of it. And there's any number of countries that have gotten into pretty dire straits. And then what they've done is they've fixed their budgeting system. A lot of them have adopted rules like balanced budget rules, things like that. Uh, And so we do need to get the politicians to back those changes. But then once they do, there certainly is a hope. And, uh, you know, we talked before about how Congress doesn't actually consider a real budget. Never has. Um, But that would be one of the big pieces. If you have everything in front of you, then you can look across all the different programs and say, does this make sense? Does this add value? Or can we do without it? Can we divert those resources from this thing that's not worth doing to something that would be a better value for the taxpayers and the people? Yeah, that is good news. I got to admit, you're the first one that we've had on the program that actually gave me an optimistic view of, yes, we can actually get this back on track because (laughs) everybody that I talked to are like, yeah, we're kind of too far gone and I don't know how we get this back (laughs) under control. Uh oh, I think we lost him. I think he hung up there. We'll try, we'll try and see if we can't get him back on here. Uh, but that's Kirk Couchman, Senior Fellow for Fiscal Policy for Americans for Prosperity. So uh, that's at least some good news. Uh, I, I haven't heard some positivity in that sense yet. What is? Are we gonna Are we gonna play this game again? There we go. Let's try and see this again and see if we can get him back on the program uh, again. Live radio, my friends. This is what it's all about. Um, if we have the positivity to actually fix these things and get us back on track, then that's optimism. And it's a work in progress, right?
We can slowly work to make things things better. We can actually work ourselves to uh, to get back on track and get a good path going. Again, the problem is, do we have the elected officials to actually do something like that? Let's see if we got him back here. Kurt, are you back with us here? Tom, please record your message. Uh-oh. I think so. maybe his phone died. We'll try him back here in just a minute. Sorry, we got a commercial break in just a minute. Uh, AmericansforProsperity.org is the website if you want to go and check them out. And by the way, uh, for my friends here in the Wichita area, I know we're all over the place. But our friends here in the Wichita area, if you do want to turn out tonight, Americans for Prosperity at the state level does have an event coming up tonight. I will be attending that, and you can come and check that one out as well. It is the Prosperity Express in Wichita. It is going to be at the Temple Baptist Church at 6 o'clock tonight. For those that are not in the Wichita area, don't worry about that, but your local AFP organization will be doing something for that as well. Let's see if we got it back here. Kurt, are you with me? I am back with you. Hey, there not we sure go. What happened there? Uh, there we go. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened there. There we go. Uh, I appreciate you jumping back on with us, though. We have just about oh 30 seconds before we take a commercial break, so I want to tease when we come back uh, on what we can do. And as I I was mentioning before we got cut off, that we actually have some optimism, and you're one of the first ones to say that, which is really good. So I want to talk about what we can do to actually get that back on track, not just at the federal level. But as you mentioned, the state levels as well, putting policies in place and maybe becoming a little more financially independent at a statewide level. I had a conversation earlier today on social media with an individual who did not believe that we still have the concept of federalism and state sovereignty in this nation to do their own things. Obviously, not quite understanding how this nation works, or at least how it should be working with the idea of federalism. So we'll do some of that when we come back here. It's Kurt Couchman, Senior Fellow for Fiscal Policy for Americans for Prosperity. How we can get ourselves back on track. The question of the day. We'll do that when we come back here on The Voice of Reason for a pre-Friday celebration. Stay here. This is The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Fighting for freedom every day. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed it is. Welcome back into it. Radio, TV, live streaming, podcasting, 24 minutes past the hour. I really think <laughs> with, with Kurt's line getting disconnected in the last segment, we tried it a couple of days ago and we had some phone issues. I'm really starting to think that Chuck Schumer doesn't want us to have this conversation. I'm blaming the government, all right? Welcome back into it. Might be closer to home. That might be closer to home. That's right. See, they're cutting your line off. I'm telling you, they they don't want you to be talking about this stuff. It is frustrating, but I, as we went into the break, as as I said, I'm glad that there's optimism because there are very few things that make me very very angry. And it may be a, an absolute dork this way, but the the finances, the budget for the federal government drive me nuts. And how we don't see this is is mind-boggling to me. Senator James Lankford today uh, went on the floor and tried to propose a bill to not allow the government to shut down. I think there are a lot of Republicans and a lot of conservatives, a lot of just general population people right now that say, I don't care if the government shuts down. They are so um, inefficient in how they operate, they really don't need to be operating right now anyways. I mean, is that the way a lot of people feel right now, do you think? A lot of people do feel that way, but uh, we strongly support the, the Langford-Hassan bill. Uh, James Langford, Republican from Oklahoma, and uh, Maggie Hassan, Democrat from New Hampshire. Uh, it's called the Prevent Government Shutdowns Act, and what it would do is change the incentives in Congress in a really healthy way. Because right now, because there's the possibility of shutdowns, um, the appropriators, the senior appropriators and leadership, they put something together in secret. This is what the incentives push them to do. Yeah. Um, since they're writing the bill, they can stuff their things in there. And also, 
um, because they don't want to tick off the interest groups that are ready to send nasty grams to all the members of Congress. They just leave all the bloat in there. It's the path of least resistance to have these bloated bills that have some of the drafters' special uh, things that they care about in there. And then they ram it through, not because most members think it's better than the status quo, but because it's better than a shutdown. That's it. That's terrible. So if you just take shutdowns off the table, which, by the way, was the what happened at the federal level before Jimmy Carter's attorney general reinterpreted an old law, um, then you take away all those perverse incentives and you actually have to have something that's better than the current policy to get enough members to vote for it. And that means you're moving things better and better in the right direction, um, you know, from one year to the next instead of just sort of muddling around, not really going anywhere. Yeah, I like that. You're absolutely right. I mean, it, it takes away that fear tactic that they like to use because that's how they bully us into it. And for whatever reason, mm-hmm. Republicans seem to be scared of our own shadows. Oh, we're going to be blamed for a government shutdown. We can't do that. I guess we better compromise and let them get whatever they want to. And we've forgotten the real term of what compromise is up there, which is us just giving in to whatever they want and try to bully us into. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, like avoiding shutdowns, preventing shutdowns, that changes the incentives in a good direction. States yeah. to do this spend a little bit less per capita. Um, but we really do need to transform the process. And what we were talking about before, about moving to a system where there's a real budget that actually has everything in it, that's the only way you can actually manage everything. Um, and like, if you have something you want to pursue as a, a legislator, okay, you go out there, you make your case to your colleagues. If they agree with you, you put it in the bill and you get it done. If they don't, okay, you move on to something else. Right. But that's just like what legislating should be. <laughs> that's their job. That's their point of why they go up there in the first place. Carol, we got just about 40 seconds left here, but let's go bring bring it down to the statewide levels real quick. I know we push for a little bit of aid, some type of financial independence, so that way we don't accept so many of these government programs. Is that feasible, and how do you think states are handling this issue right now with big government spending at the federal level? Well, it's tough because about 30 to 40 percent of state budgets, depending on the state, are just transfers from the federal government. But there are things that states can do individually and collectively to uh, improve their independence. Structural balance, so instead of balancing every year, um, which is tough because uh, revenue is so volatile just because of the economy. If you do structural balance, you can kind of save for a rainy day during the good times and not overspend during the good times. And then you can kind of bail yourself out during the bad times with this money that you've been collecting during the good times. So that's that's one really powerful way that you can improve state independence from D.C. And of course, we got to have we got to have members of Congress that are thinking about federalism and, and ways to empower the states to exercise their own sovereignty. One step at a time, my friend. You bring optimism, and I appreciate that so much. It's Kurt Couchman with Americans for Prosperity. Kurt, thank you so much, my friend. Let's get you back on again real soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Hey, appreciate it. Lots more coming up here for The Voice of Reason. Stay here. With Andy Hoosier. When Reason Meets Radio. This is The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed it is. Welcome back into it. Radio, TV, live streaming, podcasting, however you watch or listen to us. We always love you. Appreciate you very, very much. Your Millennial General reporting for duty, trying to cram that 10 pounds of reason into that 5-pound bag, trying to rebrand the Millennial Generation, one radio listener at a time on all of our wonderful, great, fantastic, superb, bigly radio stations. Yeah. And I think we're going to make it bigly. <laughs> That's what we do here on the show. So welcome into it. Great to have you. I want to shift gears because I told you, man, strap in, buckle up. We have a lot to cover today, and it's the in-depth conversations we like to have on this show, unlike any other talk show. So let's get into our latest. What's trending? 
What's trending today? As I'm happy to have back on the program, bet a little bit. As they're getting geared up for their 50th annual meeting with these states on what state priorities need to be across the nation. Obviously, as we just talked about in the last couple of segments, that we are in a disaster at the federal level. And there's only so much we can do at the federal level, except for continue to call our elected officials to continue to advocate for them to do the right things. And it seems like they're doing it. And I, I want to be very clear, the bill that Senator James Lankford from Oklahoma has proposed about preventing government shutdowns. I support that bill. That seems like a fantastic bill Um, because Kurt was absolutely right in the last segment that that's what we need. If we take that off the table, they can't cram everything they want to in a final bill last minute and say we have to pass it to see what's in it. But if you don't pass it, then you hate veterans and you hate homeless people and you hate ill people and so on and so forth. And you just want them to die in the streets, which is what they tell us all the time. We're tired of that kind of conversation. So... If we take that off the table, then we can actually have a hopefully somewhat more rational conversation on the budget, get things back under control, and start to shift the ship back in the right direction. But outside of that, what do we do at the local levels, at the statewide levels, to try and be as independent as we can, the sovereign states that we are under the concept of federalism? Talk about some of that and more. Really happy to have back on the program. He's the vice president of policy. For Alec, the American Legislative Exchange Council, it's Mr. Lee Shulk with us here. Lee, how are you, my friend? Hey, Andy, I'm doing great. Yeah, how are you doing today? Uh, doing great. It's so good to have you back on the show again with us. We always love the chat. What a crazy time we live in. It seems like every year, whether it's because of we don't teach civics the proper way in school, whether it's because we just forget about this stuff, but it seems like every year more and more people forget that states have the ability to do kind of their own thing for the most part. And we continue to push for a centralization of power at the federal level. And it seems to be getting out of hand a little bit, don't it, doesn't it? Well, that's the beauty of how our founders created uh, the United States of America. It was that principle of federalism. And let's not forget that the states created the federal government, not the other way around. And so the more we can transfer that balance of power back to the states, as our founders intended, the better. Yeah. That is true. Now that we're trying to bring this back up and rebrand the uh, the way that we function under this concept of federalism, I know you guys are working on what the policy priorities need to be for many states across the nation, but talk about that. Talk about what we need to focus on this year because we have an immigration crisis, we have crime crises, we have an economic crisis right now. Uh, it, it seems like everything that we look at under the Biden regime seems to be getting worse and worse. What do we start doing to correct this course, my friend? Well, you're exactly right. And, you know, I think we were all reminded of all of the trouble that our federal government has gotten us into when our credit, uh, we, were, we were downgraded by Fitch ratings, the credit downgrade only the second time in the U.S. history uh, just a couple of weeks ago. But it's a great reminder that the real solution to what uh, is troubling our country is going to come from state capitals. It's not going to come from Washington, D.C., My organization, Alec, you know, we have the privilege of working with principled, free market, limited government minded legislators from across the country. And the other great thing about Alec is that they're constantly bringing their ideas uh, to us and sharing them with fellow Alec members, what's working and what's not. We're able to see quickly from the 50 laboratories of democracy uh, what we can get done to help Americans who Let's be honest, they're, they're suffering. We're all suffering under this permanent tax from inflation. Uh, and so I think that's a great place to start. You know, how do we implement pro-growth tax reform, for example, helping Americans 
keep more of their hard-earned paychecks. I think that's a great starting point for all of us. Yeah, that is a great starting point. Inflation right now under the Biden regime is anywhere between 15 to 30 percent, uh, really 15 to 20 percent um, for overall inflation, near 30 percent for food alone, which is pretty disastrous. If we can have more of our money back, we can actually, I don't know, afford to live, which is a very difficult thing to do right now. Um, right now, there are a lot of states that are starting to look at going to a flat tax. Here in Kansas, where I'm based out of, we tried to do that last year as well, and it didn't quite work. But do you think that's a solution? Uh, the way to go is to go towards a flat tax or a single-payer tax rate or uh, for both consumers and businesses to try and just make it simple for us to function and know exactly what to expect when we see our tax money come out? Yeah, I think when you move from a progressive tax structure to a flat tax, uh, it's a great move. Uh, to help states grow and thrive. I think it's important when we do that, though, to make sure that we're giving a tax cut to everyone that's paying income taxes. So it it may not be enough to just flatten the, the tax brackets, but let's also look at lowering the rates as well. You know, it was amazing. In 2022, we saw a record five states move to a flat tax in just a single year. And, you know, states have been taxing income since 1910, uh, between 1910 and 2021, only four states had ever switched to a flat tax. But in 2022, we had five states do it in just one year. And so I think that was a great trend uh, to provide that tax relief. You know, aside from moving to the flat tax, though, going back to 2021, over the last three years, not even three years, we've seen a total of 21 states cut the personal income tax. Uh, mm. And a handful have also chipped away at their business income tax as well. Uh, so I think that is uh, a really positive development at the state. It's not a story that really grabs the national headlines enough, but uh, if you know where to look, there are some positive trends happening around the country. Yeah, that is some good news. In your opinion, which one would fare better with the states moving towards either a flat tax and a single-payer tax rate like that or getting rid of personal income tax and going straight sales tax only, which I know has been another option. And the National Sales Tax Group, I forget what they're called, just Sales Tax Organization, Federation, whatever it is, they've pushed that for a long time as well. Is that an option as well here? Well, no matter what type of tax you're looking at, I think we need to make sure that the rates aren't going sky high, they're not going out of control. But I will say that you know, looking at decades of research that we've done as we've compiled our Rich States, Poor States publication, now in its 16th edition, you know, we're comparing all 50 states on their economic policies and what's helping some states grow and thrive and what's really hurting other states. We've found that the income tax is a huge inhibitor to economic growth. And so what we often like to do with that report is compare the nine states that have a 0% tax on personal income compare and contrast those with the nine states that have some of the highest tax rates in the country. You're talking about some of the usual suspects like New York, New Jersey, California, Minnesota. And I think it's amazing, especially when you look at some of the migration patterns uh, and, you know, the states that are have the lower taxes. Uh, these are places like Florida, no income tax. Uh, you had 300,000 people on net move to Florida in a single year. Yeah. And on the flip side, you had about 300,000 leave the state of New York. Uh, and so that trend is something that we see not in every single case, but by and large, it is those pro-growth, those low-tax freedom states that are starting to really grow, uh, whereas some of the blue states and the high-tax environments, these states in uh, many cases are just bleeding residents. 
Yeah, that is very true. We're talking with Lee Shulk, Vice President of Policy for American Legislative Exchange Council, also known as ALEC, as they're getting ready for their big annual meeting this year on what the priorities are for the state. Let's shift away from economic issues for just a moment. Let's talk about school choice and education. We sat down a few days ago with the School Choice Awareness Foundation, as more states seem to be focusing on this as a big issue as well. And I remember a few years ago, the big story was when Governor Scott Walker in Wisconsin took on the teachers' unions to try and bring more school choice, to bring bring more conversation to the education conversation. And it led to about three different recall attempts against him because of how powerful those teachers' unions actually were. Now we're seeing a lot of states make this as a serious conversation on school choice and trying to find ways to better education. Is this one of the top priorities you guys have for states to try and focus on this year? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, when you talk about school choice, specifically universal school choice and education opportunity programs, 2023 has just been a banner year with it seems like state after state uh, following the ALEC recommendations. In many cases, ALEC legislators leading the charge on these issues. But Iowa is a great example of a state that got it done. Uh, Kim Reynolds signing the Universal Education Freedom Bill. We've seen other states like Indiana, Utah, Florida. It's just been a banner year when it comes to education freedom. And I think what I've heard a lot about is we need to start focusing on the students. We need to prioritize students and their futures as opposed to prioritizing education systems. Uh, And so, you know, I think a lot of people are realizing that the status quo in education uh, is not working. Uh, We can't have a one-size-fits-all Uh, But we need to have options on the table. You know, public school might be great for some families. It might not be the best option for others. And so the more choice that we can provide, the better. And that has certainly been a huge topic of conversation among ALEC members and really across the country. It's been an incredible year for education freedom. Yeah, amen to that. What a concept. More choices to get people the freedom to choose on how best to get their kids educated and take them to school in some way, shape, or form. I know that uh, here in Kansas, I know micro-schooling has become a big thing with uh, the community, just getting together, wanting to just bring the kids in the backyard and teach them about things on the side as well. I think that's an absolutely awesome idea, and I think we should see that being promoted across the nation as well. Got to take a break here. Uh, One more segment right around the corner. It's Lee Schalk with American Legislative Exchange Council, also known as ALEC. He's the VP of Policy. When we come back, I want to talk some about some of the other issues they have. And we've talked a little bit about it on the program before with artificial intelligence, with the right to work. We see that UAW strike that's about ready to take place as of tomorrow. Ah, yeah, you know I was going to go there. We'll see if we can't squeeze some of that in. One more segment right around the corner. It's The Voice of Reason on a pre-Friday. Stay here. This is The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. for freedom every day. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed it is. Welcome back into it. Last couple of minutes here on the show. So there are very few things that get me really, really, really revved up and really angry, and that is because I'm a dork. Economic policy and labor unions. I know, don't. I know it. I know it. And right now we're seeing the, we're seeing the potential strike that could start tomorrow with what they say near 150,000 workers or something ridiculous for the UAW, the United Auto Workers, because they want to be paid more for a four-day work week. They want to cut back their hours to only working four days, but they want to be paid more 
than what they're doing right now, working really five or six days. And I get that. I mean, obviously, they're working a lot and nothing against the worker there. But come on, man. Come on. So that brings up the conversation for the right to work. We talk a lot with the National Right to Work Committee uh, on the program, Mark Mix. He's a good friend of the program, and we have him on quite a bit. But Lee, uh, we're talking with uh, Lee Shulk with American Legislative Exchange Council, also known as ALEC. Lee, I got to get your input on this one because is this uh, the right to work? I think needs to be mandated for all states, and I know they're trying to push that in a lot of these states. A lot of them don't have it right now, but we're seeing a lot of people potentially walk off the line tomorrow because they want to be paid more to to work less. And I don't know how that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, right-to-work laws are critical for, for the 50 states, and we've got more than half the country that has a right-to-work law in place. But I'll tell you what, as we're looking at, you know, we talked a little bit about where taxpayers are moving, some of the trends with migration. But you look at, especially during the pandemic, how many big businesses packed up and relocated. I mean, almost every single time you see a headline, about, let's say, Caterpillar leaving Illinois. I mean, these companies are moving to right-to-work states. And it's really amazing if you look at, since 2020, the, the top 10 states in terms of creating the most jobs, nine out of 10 of those states are right-to-work. Um, only Montana, in 10th place, it does not have a right-to-work law. And so there's really no downside to uh, giving more worker freedom and not requiring union membership or any form of dues as a condition of employment. You know, more freedom, the better in every case. Yeah. Amen to that. If they do end up going on strike, I know this could essentially put a halt to a lot of auto manufacturing in the nation right now. We're already seeing some extremely high prices for new vehicles because of inflation, because of regulation on the auto industry, trying to push them towards EVs, trying to uh, the, the limit of supply that we have, the taxes that we're seeing on just the raw materials and the production of it. Could this potentially give us another shortage of vehicles after what we saw with the chip shortage? And is this going to jack up the price on vehicles if they end up going on strike? Well, that's a big question. I think there certainly could be some uh, some consequences if we do see that strike. And I think we'll have to stay tuned. Uh, but, you know, it has been unfortunate. Some of those things that we've been suffering through, especially in the last couple of years. Uh, and, and I, I, you know, I think with the government, uh, imposed lockdowns and economic shutdowns. We really haven't been doing ourselves any favor, uh, but this, I think, could be another blow. Yeah, it is unfortunate. Uh, last minute here, about a minute and a half, but what else is on the priority list for you guys? I know you have a list of like 23 to 23, uh, 23 to 25 different items for states to focus on this year. Uh, what haven't we covered yet that you guys really want to focus on come 2024? Yeah, you know, we continue to uh, talk a lot about keeping politics out of state pension funds. Uh, that's something with our model policy, the State Government Employee Retirement Protection Act, making sure that our states aren't investing uh, public pension dollars for political purposes. Another one that's been a huge point of conversation has been surrounding artificial intelligence. Mm. And, you know, I'm a big fan of the Terminator series, but we're not talking <laughs> about Skynet here. And, you know, as there's so much new technology as it relates to AI. Our position and, and the, the position of a lot of our members is that let's pump the brakes, let's not overregulate a new technology, but let's also reject any attempts from the government uh, to ban AI or undermine free market principles within AI. So I think that's going to continue to be a huge conversation for the 50 states uh, in the entire country. 
Yeah, you really opened up. Last time we talked about that a few months ago, whenever it was that you came on and we talked about artificial intelligence, you really opened up my eyes and really brought a new perspective to it because I'm so like anti-technology. As a 34-year-old guy, I probably shouldn't be anti-technology, but I really am because I just don't like it. But you opened up my eyes and said that if unless we're part of the conversation in crafting the regulation and legislation for something like this technology, we're going to be lost away from it and we're going to see kind of like what we see in social media where we're shadow banned we're isolated and we don't have any type of influence within it based on our conservative values and we have to be part of that conversation and i appreciate that so i'm glad you guys continue to focus on that issue along with so many more with their upcoming 50th annual meeting with the states what priorities we need to focus on going into 2024 lee it's always good to talk to you my friend let's do it again real soon brother Thank you, Andy. Hey, always a pleasure. All right, that does it for us today. Back at it again tomorrow. We got so much more to talk about and more great guests, so you're not going to want to miss it. Until then, podcast up in just a little bit. Be your own voice of reason. This is The Voice of Reason. I'm Andy Hoosier. We'll see you on the radio.